All right, good morning, Mercy House. I'm Pastor Tommy. I am excited uh, to have you here worshiping with us this Sunday. I do want to thank Jake, one of our elders. Last week we had our family worship Sunday, and it was just awesome. He brought the word to our little ones and to us, and um, we've just gotten a lot of good feedback from these family worship Sundays, so we're going to continue having them. Our kids, our little ones are really important to us, and so we want to just make that a regular part uh, of the diet of Mercy House teaching. So uh, expect more of that, and the next time you can expect that is actually on Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday is a family worship Sunday, so it's going to be a crazy awesome day, and I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it already. Mercy House is a fractured church. It's a fractured church. And before you squirm too much, I do want to say like every church in this valley Every church in America, every church in the world on this side of eternity, past, present, and future, is a fractured, broken church. This is one of the things that we're seeing as we read through Paul's letter uh, to the Corinthians, that, that church is oftentimes really messy, and that's because people are messy. And churches sometimes get some things wrong because people within the church sometimes get things wrong. And what we see Paul doing in this letter is what we ought to do when things are broken or wrong. And what he does is he corrects, he resets, so that what is fractured might actually come to a place of healing. And this process is not comfortable by any means. And when I was younger, I fell through a a glass window. I was playing on my friend's shoulders, and we both went down, and I toppled out of a window. and, And I sliced my hand really bad, like to the bone. And, uh, and, and I remember my dad was taking me to the doctors to get some stitches, but before the doctor could stitch it up, what they did was they had to clean it out. And so they had this little metal tool that literally was like a reverse clamp. It like opened up the wound. I could see my bones in there. And in a very barbaric way, uh, they took like a swab and they just like dug in at it because gravel and dirt had gotten like in there. And it was excruciating to say the least. But they had to clean it out before they packed it up and, 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 and stitched it back up because we didn't want it to get infected so that it wouldn't rot, so that it actually could heal properly and so they could like, have a hand that works today. And I have a scar to prove it if anyone wants to see afterwards. And Paul, for these first five and a half chapters, he's been cleaning out wounds in Corinth. He's been digging in like a masterful surgeon, cleaning and repairing so that the church at Corinth can heal properly in the places that they're fractured. This is not a comfortable process, and it hasn't been comfortable for us as we're kind of listening in on it. What it involves is speaking truth to the Corinthians who might not want to hear or even kind of see some of the areas of brokenness that Paul is exposing. Another story for you, last fall I was fixing a chair, and I was using a nail gun, and I was trying to uh, nail these two things together, and I kid you not, I'm really silly. I was holding a piece of wood, and I was bracing it, and I literally shot the nail gun into my own hand. And when that immediately happened, my instinct was like I closed it up, and I was like afraid to actually see the damage of it. Like blood is dripping down my arm. Like, oh, this can't be good. You know, like when you just don't want to see it. Like kids do this too. It's like a weird thing that happens where it's not real unless like you actually see it. So this is why kids like cover their eyes when something scary is in the room. They block their ears because like they don't want to hear. It doesn't actually make the thing go away, but they just don't want to confront that reality. This is why my wife, Caitlin, she watches movies like behind a water bottle. So like she can't like fully see what's on the other side of the water bottle. And what Paul is doing is he's pulling our hands down from our eyes. He's taking away that water bottle and he's helping us lovingly, encouragingly, like open up our hands to be able to assess the damage 
that's there so that God can clean out those wounds, so that we can take steps toward healing and wholeness. And one of the major areas of, of damage and fracturing in Corinth was the Corinthians' perspective on sin. This has been an ongoing theme as we've gone through this book, and we saw, uh, we saw this two weeks ago as Paul is admonishing the church uh, for not taking sin more seriously as a community, that instead of grieving sin when they see it in a brother or, or calling it out in one another when they see it within the church, Corinth did what we might really be tempted to do here today, which is to be complacent in it, to, to not rock the boat and try to avoid awkward conversations with one another or, or just to like arrogantly uh, rely on grace without any form of repentance, which in the end, as we saw in that chapter, is incredibly disastrous for those who are in the sin, but then also incredibly destructive for the church as a whole. And Corinth wasn't being arrogant or complacent in their sin because they didn't care about what was right and wrong as evidenced by the beginning of chapter 6, which, which Jake went through last week. See, the Corinthians, they loved fighting over what was right and wrong. They brought each other to court every single week, and they're living out their own version of Judge Judy, or maybe more likely like, like a Jerry Springer, as a form of entertainment for themselves. And they would fight tooth and nail. They would use all of their money, all of the reputation and power to crush and extort one another, uh, one another and over really trivial, childish things. And Jake was limited on time, so he wasn't really able to dive into the nuance, but they were going to battle with one another over things that were so silly. It would be like if you took my parking spot across the street and, and then like I took you to, to court over it. And like we, 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 we arbitrated over that. It really was one of the most straightforward applications that you're ever going to get in Scripture. Paul is like, guys, you need to be able to figure this out on your own. You need to be able to figure it out on your own. Daniel Tiger, one of our girl's favorite child, uh, children's shows, they have like the same application. And they have this song. It says, you're big enough, you're big enough to find out what to do. That's an entire episode. And our little girls know that sometimes there are things that you can figure out on your own. And that's effectively what Paul is telling to the Corinthians. And so far in this letter, Paul has pointed out that sin has like uh, just permeated all aspects of their life and it's caused so much brokenness and distortion in their lives. We're seeing that sin breaks their relationships with one another. And that's evidenced by the divisions that sprout up in the church. That they don't see how sin affects and distorts their understanding of justice as evidenced by their insistence on their personal rights and they're suing each other over really childish things. They don't see how sin destroys their collective holiness as evidenced by them just letting sin kind of live in and permeate throughout the church and their friendships. And in this morning's text, what we're going to see is Paul's going to show the Corinthians that, that sin is breaking their relationship with themselves and their own bodies, and then ultimately with God as well. So let's dive into the text, verse 9 of chapter 6. Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. As we go into these verses, I think that we might be tempted to look back at those previous verses, 1 through 8, uh, which is where Paul is talking about people taking people to court uh, as being kind of silly and maybe trivial in and of itself. 
And I think Paul is aware that some of the Corinthians might be like, okay, relax, Paul. Like, it's not that big of a deal that, that we're kind of going to court over these things. It's things similarly, like when we're younger and we're doing something that we know we shouldn't be doing, and someone in the friend group, maybe it was you, says, hey, guys, I don't think we should be doing this. And of course, everyone's response is like, ah, like, it's not that big of a deal. Like, relax. And I never was really the one to say that we shouldn't be doing something. I was usually the one that was being called out. But here's what was going, th- going on in my head when I was being called out. That, okay, this person's probably right, but it's not that big of a deal. So let's continue doing what we're doing. I'm sure in Corinth there were people thinking this, as Paul points out, that they shouldn't be bringing each other to court. Like, Paul, what's the big deal? And Paul's wise enough to know this, which is why these verses immediately after uh, verses 1 through 8, he effectively tells them that this is a huge deal. It's a huge deal. Look at verse 9, the first part there. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? I don't know if there's a better way for Paul to kind of wake them up and say, hey, this is really critical and you should really pay close attention and take this seriously. So those words, do you not know, which comes before several things that Paul says in this passage and and also in many other places in this letter, and you see it nine times total, it's Paul's way of saying, hey, if you're a Christian, like, this should not surprise you, what I'm about to say. It implies that one should know, as a Christian, what he's about to say. And so it's kind of like if someone professes to be a Christian, like, hey, I love Jesus, like, I, I, I want to follow him, and, and, I, and I love him completely, and they also say, like, hey, I, I'm going to uh, go to this prayer ceremony for Krishna, like the eighth avatar of Vishnu, and participate. Like, do you want to come with me and do that? I think what we'd say is, like, uh, do you not know that Christians only pray to God the Father, the God that we see in the Bible? So when Paul says this, it's not meant to, like, bring them shame, but it's meant kind of as a reminder, in case we forget, uh, it's, it's a reminder for something that really isn't that arguable within the Christian construct. And what Paul is reminding the Corinthians and us is that unrighteousness or, or sinfulness and disobedience to God or any deviation from what is perfect and good has no place with God. And this is a broader theological pillar for Christians, one that really isn't that nuanced or, or arguable, which is this reality that God is perfect He is holy, he is righteous, and that imperfection, unholiness, unrighteousness, sin, it cannot be in his presence. And again, this is not like a matter of preference for God, as if God prefers things to be like neat and tidy or perfect, or maybe he's like neurotic about cleanliness. Like that's not what this is talking about. This repulsion that God has from sin and unrighteousness is like a natural property It's like when you put oil and water together, they're going to separate. It's like the natural property of gravity. Like if I drop something, it's going to fall. And so God is, by nature of his holiness, repulsed by sin. And Paul is reminding the Corinthians, whether we think that that sin is minor or really significant, either way, it cannot be in the presence of God. And so if we are, are sick and, and contaminated with this sin, we cannot enter into the holy presence of God. We cannot inherit the kingdom of God, which is Paul's way of saying we can't enter into the holy presence of God, and that's something that is eternal. Sin distorts, it destroys, and it displaces us from the presence of God. And for the non-believer, the unbeliever, that is for all of eternity. And this is how serious sin is, for the individual. This is what Paul is trying to convince the Corinthians of because they they just don't get it. 
But this is why Paul puts it out there. And it seems like maybe Paul is going from zero to 100. Like he's talking about some people squabbling within the church and then them being potentially like eternally damned and separated from God for all of eternity. But he does double down on this point. And he's not just content with it being like a broad general general theological concept, but he goes on in the second half of verses 9 and then into 10 to list off specific sins that would have categorically fit under unrighteousness. Look at the second half of verse 9. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I just want to say, like, I know that these verses aren't necessarily easy to read. That there are some words and phrases here that make us feel embarrassed, Others of us maybe feel really frustrated. Others might have no emotion when there actually should be some emotion. And so I just want to ask you to to lean in here. And I'm praying that God will bring clarity where there is confusion, that that there would be healing where there's been experienced hurt, and ultimately that, that there would be hope, that we would see the hope in this passage amidst a place of being in fear or just uncertainty. Paul lists out some sins here, which he's already done in chapter 5, and he does it in other places in his other letters. And the purpose of lists like this, usually uh, considered vice lists, are to specifically describe unbelievers, uh, people who don't know God, who haven't put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ as their God and as their Savior. And the purpose of lists like this are not necessarily to dive deep into the explanation of each of these items, any more than, than a table of contents is meant to kind of give you a broad idea of, of, of what's happening up ahead. And so Paul is simply communicating uh, like one point. And what he's saying is that unrighteous people are not able to be with a righteous God. And here are some examples of unrighteous living from those who are unrighteous, those who are not believers. One way to approach this list Uh, is kind of like a a list of symptoms for COVID. I know, we're sick of talking about COVID, but bear with me. When COVID first hit, the CDC released information about COVID-19 stating that if you or a loved one was experiencing certain symptoms on this list, then you might have COVID. That if you had a fever or a cough or, or a long list of other symptoms, like it might be a good idea to at least get tested before you just like hang out with everybody. So I think similarly... Corinth would have seen this list, and it would have been a helpful guide for them. They would have looked at it and seen, if you or someone that you loved in the church was living in a lifestyle that, that would identify with things on this list, it, it should, at the very least, make you like examine yourself or examine your loved one to see, hey, is there like some deeper concern here? If someone is professing faith and saying that the gospel has transformed their lives, yet they're living a life of regularly stealing things or, or just habitually drinking in excess or, or they have a reputation for being greedy for gain, then I think it's absolutely fair to question them and to press in a little bit. Again, not out of uh, prideful judgment of them. We talked a lot about this when we were going over 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're doing it with a heart of compassion and care for that person, wanting that person to experience wholeness and doing it with gentleness and grace. Because here's the implication. The implication is that the gospel transforms lives. 
And Jesus not only grants believers freedom from our slavery, uh, uh, from, from sinful and broken behavior, but he's also given us a new heart and, and new desires for us to want holiness and to be more like Jesus. Something that Paul is pointing out is that a tree is known by its fruit. This is one of the common images used in Scripture. And you see Jesus talking about symptoms of believers and symptoms of non-believers in Luke chapter 6, verses 43 through 45. This is going to be on your screens. And Jesus says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from, the bram- from a bramble bush. The good person out of a good treasure, which is the gospel, quick uh, exposition there, like uh, the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Healthy trees bear good fruit. And on the other hand, unhealthy trees bear bad fruit. And what Paul's doing, he's, he's listing off bad fruit. Now, as a caveat, is it possible for a healthy tree to have one bad apple? I think so. I think that's what's happening when Christians are sinning. But what he's saying is, if there is really unhealthy bad fruit, you should look at the tree and see what's going on there. Paul is, is doing this by listing off these sinful vices that, have, that would have hit home for a lot of the Corinthians. And he's not only speaking in generalities, but he's doing the meticulous scraping and the cleaning and saying, yes, these things are a big deal. These are bad fruit. Because here are the two situations that we have. The best case scenario is that if you're a Christian and you have bad fruit in your life, and if you are struggling in sin, like the best case scenario is that that sin is distorting your ability to navigate through the world. Uh, that sin is also destroying your life and it's displacing you from fellowship with God. That's the best case scenario. If there's ongoing unrepentant sin in your life. The worst case scenario is that bad fruit of sin in our lives might be an indicator that we're not saved. That's why Paul is telling him to take this seriously, that, that we don't have God's spirit inside of us transforming and growing us into God's likeness. And if that's the case, then we cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We cannot experience eternal life with God. Now, this is not meant to be a fear-mongering text. The application is not to be paranoid and to live uh, anxiously wondering if we're a Christian every single time that, that we sin. But there is a sobering reality that, that we are to be wary and dig in when we do see sin in our lives and to ask hard questions, whether that's to a brother or a sister who has sin in their lives or, or, or even to ourselves as we look in the mirror. And that question is, is, if I'm living in sin, then what about the gospel am I not getting? Because that's Paul's exhortation here at the beginning of this text. He says, don't be deceived. And so while we shouldn't be paranoid or anxious, we should be on guard. We see Paul encouraging the Philippians to engage in this type of guardedness as well. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now only, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And the fear and trembling is coming from the fact that these are serious matters. Sin should never be looked at as, a, as minor in the life of a believer. Never. 
It, it should be treated like, like a giant tumor that's under your skin. And if you woke up with like a giant lump on your chest, you wouldn't just go about your day like, like nothing is wrong. You wouldn't be nonchalant about it. To use Paul's words, like, do you not know that large lumps on the body are usually not good if they just sprout out from nowhere? And so we'd go check it out. We'd have the doctor take an MRI. We'd have that thing drained or lop it off. There's a level of seriousness to it, and that's what Paul would want the Corinthians to to have the attitude towards sin in their lives. And one of the beautiful things about being a Christian is that you and I do not have to live with sin in our lives anymore. Look at verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. This is one of my most favorite verses in the Bible, and specifically those first five words there, where he says, and such were some of you. So leading up to these five words, Paul is reminding us that sinners are eternally separated from God. And that, that was the fate of the Corinthians as he's writing this to them. They were the unrighteous who had no inheritance, who were destined to experience eternal death and separation from God. Like that was their story. And then these five words demonstrate that Paul believes in the radically transformative power of the gospel. It reminds us, as we read it, of the absolute miracle that there even was a church in crazy Corinth. Because Paul goes on, says, yes, that was your origin story, uh, but it didn't end there. And what Paul does is he points to the stark contrast in someone's life from when they were not a believer to when they became a believer. He says, you were washed You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. This language of being washed, it brings about images of baptism, which is a definitive moment in someone's life when when they're declaring to the world and declaring in their heart that they trust Jesus and they want to follow Jesus. And in that moment of salvation, whether it coincides with the actual baptism or not, but there's this moment where they are made holy. That's what that word sanctified means here. So that all the ways that, they, that, that sin has tainted them and contaminated all of us through and through, like Jesus has washed us, he has made us pure and holy and clean. But then not only this, but being given uh, a right standing before God. That's what it means to be justified. We have right standing before God. We've been cleared of our sin. We've been made kings and queens with an eternal inheritance in Christ. And what's even more than this is that these words, when you look at them, washed, sanctified, justified, these words are in the aorist tense, which basically means that these are not ongoing verbs. Paul is not saying, hey, you are being washed, you are being sanctified, or you are being justified, but that these are wholly and completely already finished and definitively accomplished once and for all in the life of the believer. So when you become a Christian, you become a new creation. This is what Paul is trying to convince and remind and teach the Corinthians. So it's not like you're getting fit and you work out each day for for some incremental changes and improvements in your health. Like we go from being completely dead to being alive in Christ. That's the stark contrast that Paul is talking about. When we decide to trust and follow Jesus, there is a spiritual, supernatural, natural, tangible change in us as people. This is what Paul is reminding the Corinthians. He's saying, you are 
different now. You've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. So don't live like those things haven't happened. Going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, where he says, cleanse out the old leaven. That's a word for sin. Cleanse out that sin so that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened or you really are sinless. So may God help us all to live as we really are. Corinth struggled with this. They struggled with this. And as we look back at that vice list, it's going to show us what they struggled with specifically. I know that there are a couple in this list that stick out to us, and I'm willing to bet it's not like the word swindlers here. But as we read through it again, verses, uh, verse 9, the second part there, and verse 10, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. One of the things to remember about Corinth is that it was a city that was a, a, a hot spot for sexual activity. Remember, their culture was one of living in, in lavish excess. It was all about catering to, to the desires of their flesh. And in addition to this, there's the, the famous temple of Aphrodite. And each night you'd have thousands of women coming down from that temple to sell their bodies as prostitutes. And they would have sex as, as an act of worship to their god. I think sometimes we can make the mistake of thinking that our culture today is so sex-crazed and, oh, everything's so ultra-sexualized, as if, like, there had never been behavior like this in the history of the world, which is not true. And Corinth would have been a prime example of this. And so while Paul does call out other sins, which, which, which we'll talk about, it's the ones of the sexual nature that dominate this list and which he actually follows up and talks further on later on in this letter, right after this. And Paul calls out uh, three areas of broken sexual behavior in Corinth as, as lifestyles that are just unbefitting to those who are new creations in Christ. He talks about adulterers, which are those who are unfaithful to their spouse in marriage. And kind of to expand on that a little bit today, like just because you're not married doesn't mean that, that you would be immune to this. And even Jesus himself is saying if, if you're lustful in your heart, if you have a lustful thought uh, against another person, like that is committing adultery. And so pornography or lust is going to be fitting in this list as well. He's also talking about those um, who are engaged in sexual activity with the, with the same sex. And then he also calls out the sexually immoral, which is really a catch-all for any sexual behavior that is outside of what God has designed and established for us. And so Corinth really struggled specifically in these areas. And I don't mean that they, 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 they as a culture struggled with it generally. Like Corinth as a church, the members of the church, like they struggled to live their new lives as followers of Christ and, and surrendering their old lives and the passions of their flesh, which was the way of the world for them. It's all that they knew before they became Christians. And so as they became Christians, it was really, really hard for them. And so some of the areas that we're seeing here, for some of them, it was their old life of stealing, so not trusting God to provide what was best for them, but, but taking what wasn't theirs. For other people, it would be this old life of greed. So not trusting God's portioning uh, and, and, and in, in the process, like finding hope and meaning and value and, and just amassing uh, and accumulating possessions. Other people struggle to trust God in their hurt and their pain, and so they would escape, they would numb themselves with alcohol. 
Others struggled with just having old, weary, bitter hearts filled with anger and resentment, which would be lashed out with others around them. That's what the word revilers means. And others who sought to find meaning and worth, affirmation, validation, escape, comfort in their sexuality and sexual encounters with other people. All of these people, they struggle to live their new lives in Christ, specifically to trust God's design and plan for sexuality and sex. This is a big struggle for us here today as well. I don't know how helpful it is to say that we struggle more or less than the Corinthians, but at the very least, I think that it's true to say that we as a culture, and I think we as a church, don't have a very healthy, clear, accurate understanding of biblical sex and sexuality. Corinth certainly did not. And so Paul is going to do what he does. (laughs) He points out the elephant in the room. He gently pulls down our hands from covering our eyes, and he pulls out our hands from blocking our ears, and he lovingly helps us dig into this area of struggle. Look at verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Paul takes some time here exposing some rationale, common rationale for sin in Corinth. It's important to note here that Paul's mindset is particularly focused on sexual immorality, uh, but these principles really can be extended to other sins, any sin that we might justify with similar arguments. Many commentators agree that Paul is commenting on common Corinthian slogans or phrases here, and the first one being that all things are lawful for me, and the second one being food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. And so I just want to quickly explain each of these and how they would have used them, but then also how Paul dismantles them. So the first one, all things are lawful for me, is essentially an unhealthy, unbiblical leaning into grace. We talked a lot about this when we talked about chapter 5, that many Christians in Corinth didn't really comprehend like the cost of their salvation, the cost of grace, and so they continued in on unrepentant sin even after becoming Christians. And here's the truth, that theologically this is permissible. So those who have been washed, those who have been sanctified, and those who have been justified might still sin. That doesn't mean that they've lost their salvation, Experiencing salvation means that, that the Christian is free from the law of sin. And, and so that sin doesn't condemn them any longer. And so the saying used here is technically true. That those of us who are in Christ uh, are also freed from the law. We don't have to perform the law in order to attain salvation. And we don't have to adhere to the law to maintain our salvation. So it is true. All things are lawful for me as a Christian. And the Corinthians would use this freedom to justify engaging in sin. If they were tempted to sleep around or to steal or to get drunk or lust, they would say, well, all things are lawful for me, and they would just go for it. And if not blatantly, they would at least use it to feel better after the fact. See, this is one of the early points of maturity for the Christian. It's living in this place of understanding that we do have this ultimate freedom, that we're not enslaved to sin any longer, but we're also not enslaved to rules and commandments. So whether we're a Christian or not, 
Many of us have experienced this type of freedom when we first moved out of our homes and, and our childhood homes where, where we lived under the roof of our parents. And whether that was to go to school or to, you moved away to go to work, like wherever it was, it wasn't living with your parents. And some of us, most of us, experienced a whole new level of freedom. Like mom wasn't telling you to clean the dishes and to brush your teeth every day. Like dad wasn't telling you, hey, check your tire pressure. And, and like my dad tells me to do that all the time. We didn't have that. All things are lawful for me. It was a new sense of freedom. But Paul has two arguments here. And while it's true that we can have this incredible freedom in Christ to be free from the law or any type of behavioral requirement, he says in verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. And he says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So yes, it is true. You do not have to brush your teeth twice a day every day. You don't have to do that. There's no dental police following you around and forcing that law. But exercising that freedom is not necessarily helpful for you. It's not good for your dental hygiene. It's not beneficial for you. In fact, as your pastor, I would advocate that you do regularly brush your teeth. And so while we are technically free to drink as much alcohol as we want, to eat as much sugar as we want, to watch as much TV as we want, like practically, it doesn't necessarily mean that we should. I'm using very simple examples here, and this is something that sometimes takes wisdom and maturity to exercise in different areas of our lives for things that are just morally uh, neutral. They're not like inherently sinful or bad. It takes wisdom and discernment. We know that we grow in this because children are not innately born with this level of wisdom. If it were up to my two little daughters, we would eat ice cream, breakfast, lunch, and dinner every single day. They, they don't understand that if they had that type of freedom to choose what they wanted to eat whenever they wanted to eat it, it doesn't mean that whatever they choose, choose is practically good for them. You guys following me there? And Paul also has a second counterpoint. He says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. What Paul points out is that some of the things that we might decide to do with our freedom are not just unhelpful and unbeneficial for us, they might actually capture a part of our hearts and, and our minds and take up precious space in our lives that we don't get back. So ironically, even in our freedom, it's possible that we enslave ourselves. It's hard because many of us might feel this pull to fight for our freedoms, our liberties. It's, it's what we're taught culturally. So to be an American is to live free, like don't tread on my rights. That's what it means to be a citizen in this country. And there are good things about that, and there are also bad things to that. And this is very similar, similar mindset for the Corinthians. But look at what David Pryor, he's a Bible scholar, says about this. I, think, I thought this was really helpful. He says, The Christian often adopts claims to personal rights without question. But is Paul not refusing to allow even his so-called legitimate rights to infringe his true liberty in Christ? If I am constantly concerned about my rights... Like the Christians at Corinth, how can I be genuinely free to respond to what my Lord wants me to do? Paul's rights cover the whole of life, but he is not going to allow those universal rights to dictate to him. Only Jesus Christ can do that, and he has total rights over every part of Paul's life. Paul understands that with great freedom means that he needs to be careful about how he exercises that freedom. Mercy House, we need to also be careful when we lean heavily into our freedoms in Christ. And we need to be careful when we simply lean heavily into our freedoms as members of this country where we are largely free to do whatever we want. See, the mature believer will look closely at his or her life 
It will take time to dissect how, be mindful of how we're spending our time, our resources, investing our hearts to determine, hey, is this like practically helpful for me? And then the next level of maturity is, hey, is this spiritually beneficial to me? Or is it something that's detracting from my relationship with God, that's taking away from my walk of faith? And so that's my encouragement to you is take some time to be mindful of how you're spending your time and your energy because you might be saying, I'm not an adulterer, I'm, I'm not stealing anything, I'm not getting drunk every day. But we do need to guard ourselves from being enslaved to things that, like I mentioned, are morally neutral, that might not be culturally bad, might be, not even be biblically bad, but our re- relationship to them might be. And so may the Spirit of God just reveal these things to us so that we can experience more freedom, more complete freedom in Christ. So that's one phrase. Here's another phrase that, that you would have heard a lot. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food, which is, essentially means we have appetites which tell us to eat. And so we eat to satiate that appetite. It's an argument that says, if I have a desire for something, an appetite for something, like that's a God-given appetite, it just simply means I need to satisfy it. So judging by Paul's response, the phrase was used mostly in the context of sex and sexual behavior, sexual immorality. So if my my body desires it and craves it, man, that's a God-given desire. That's a carnal need. And so I just need to give my body what it wants. The implication with this type of justification is that uh, sexual immorality is not bad. It's just like a morally neutral thing. Just like food when you're hungry or water when you're thirsty. And so the Corinthians would have said, hey, Paul, don't overcomplicate it. Like, this is just a need I have. I just got to exercise it. But look what Paul says immediately after that. Verse 13, second part there. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. So never mind that appetites can be deceiving to us sometimes. I'm sure that we can think of a time where we've had a craving or a desire for something that we knew that we shouldn't have or we shouldn't act on. So practically, if someone's like really frustrating to you and they make you so angry and they're insulting you and your family, you just want to like punch them in the face. Like, we're not going to go ahead and punch them in the face. We're not going to, des- like, satiate that desire and say, well, it was just, I was just filling a need, and, and, and I just had to justify uh, that desire that I had. Like, we're not animals. <laughs> God has given us minds and hearts and his spirit to be able to discern the motives that are behind our desires and then to make intelligent, mature, thoughtful, and godly decisions. This isn't even the route that Paul takes to dismantle this justification for the sexually immoral behavior, though. Look at what he says. He says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Paul is saying, look, these two things are not even on the same plane of comparison. Like, our need and desire for food and sustenance to stay alive is not comparable to our need and desire for sex. And the justification for for indulgence that that they're having here is just nonsensical. And it reveals that the Corinthians, they don't understand sex and they don't understand their bodies. And Paul's going to dive into this. Look at what Paul says. He says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, which is interesting. It's interesting because one could argue that the body is in fact designed to have sex as a biological process. Like that's a part of our anatomy. 
like uh, that, that a man and a woman are equipped to do these things. But Paul says something incredibly surprising. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So a translation of this is that the primary purpose of our bodies is not for sex and for reproduction. The primary purpose of our bodies is for the Lord and the Lord for our bodies. Paul, what in the world are you talking about? Is what you might be asking right now. What Paul is beginning to say is that our bodies, our physical bodies, are way more significant and important than we could imagine. Especially if we think sleeping around or, or engaging in sexual immorality doesn't matter at all, or that it's not a big, big deal. Look at these next verses, verse 14 through 18. Paul says, And God raised the Lord, and he will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. The reason why Paul uses the examples of, of a prostitute is that that was the most prevalent form of sexual immorality in Corinth. But it's not exclusive to prostitution. It's, it's talking about sexual immorality as a whole. Our bodies are eternal. Our bodies are eternal. Like, did you know that? Have you thought about that? Our bodies are not cars which we just drive into the ground. And once they have 300,000 miles and they won't start, we just ditch them on the side of the road and then move on. And Paul says in verse 14 that in the same way that Jesus was resurrected in a bodily form, one that we see in the Gospels is being able to physically interact with the world around it and to even eat food, which is the form that Jesus still has today and he's going to have for all of eternity, that God's going to do the same thing in our physical bodies to give us a resurrected physical body to reign for all of eternity alongside Jesus. I want you to take your hand. I want you to look at your hand. Hold it up and look at your hand. Everyone, just look at your hand. Look at all the little cracks and scars and whatever's on your hand. You will have this hand in some recognizable form. Maybe it's upgraded a little bit. Maybe it's redeemed. Maybe it's recreated. But you will have this hand forever. Some semblance of it, at least. This is your eternal hand. <laughs> Mercy House, your bodies are not disposable. You are not just like a, 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 a bag of bones walking around. That's, that's not who you are. You are not just a soul driving around in a beat-up uh, junker of a car that's someday going to be replaced into like some like heavenly amazing new car. This is your permanent body. And God is very much pro-body. He entered into a body and has chosen to reside inside of a body, inside of a physical body forever. That's the form that Jesus is in right now as we're talking. Christians struggle with sexual sin because we don't have a good view of our bodies. We have such a low view of our physical bodies. We view and we treat our bodies like, like a beat-up junker or a, a used car. But I, I want to encourage you, your body is like an eternal gift given to you. And I know that a lot of us really struggle in our bodies, in our physical bodies, and some of us wrestle a lot with self-image, and so we don't look the way that we would want to look. 
And some of us wrestle with chronic pain, and so our bodies don't feel the way that we want them to feel. And some of us wrestle with desires of the flesh. And so, like, when I say that this is your eternal body, there's some of us who are, like, not excited at all. And we're like, this body forever? So know that, like, your, your eternal body, it's not, like, exactly this body, but it, it's going to be healed. It, it's going to be redeemed with no effects of sin, no brokenness or contamination from the sin of this world. Jesus was recognizable in his body. It was his body as it was resurrected. He had holes in his hands from when he was crucified on the cross. And so may God heal our hearts in this area. Like, God, would you allow us to be able to cherish with dignity these bodies which God has given to us? Our bodies are not just eternal, but they are united with Christ. They're united with Christ. We'll talk more about this next week as we talk about marriage. But one of the important things to know about marriage is that it displays the gospel. And specifically here, Paul is pointing out that the intimacy between a husband and his wife in a covenant marriage, as they become one flesh together, that displays the intimate nature of our relationship with Christ. We we become one spirit with God. That's what Paul's saying there. And there's nothing sexual about that, but, but sex between a wife and her husband is a shadow of a greater reality of intimacy between God and us when we become a Christian. My wife, Caitlin, and I are really close. <laughs> We're really close. We're married. We know each other really well. We've been intimate with one another. And I'm closer to her than I am any person on this planet. And that's like by like a, a long shot. But even in the intimacy that I have with my wife, that pales in comparison to the oneness that I have with Christ. And that's not to diminish my relationship with Caitlin, but it's to say very much about my intimacy with God. And that's what Paul is trying to help them understand. I'm not going to lie, this is not like easy to understand or comprehend. This is like advanced theological understanding. And like we need the, the Spirit of God to, to open up our eyes and allow us to understand these things. I'm sure the Corinthians read and reread this section at least a few times. But this reality is what makes sexual sin so devastating. It's that our bodies are not just physical. We are not just animals that are responding to stimuli. We are eternal beings. Mind, body, and soul who have been knit together with God. And when we have sex outside of the safe and beautiful parameters which God has established for us, we experience disintegration with one another and disintegration in our relationship with God. This is why Paul says in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Sex is not like eating food. Like when you eat food, you eat it and you metabolize it and then you pass it and then you just move on. Like that's not what sex is. Sex involves our hearts. It involves our, involves our minds. It involves our souls, which means that having sex outside of damage is damaging. It's incredibly damaging. It's damaging to ourselves. It's damaging in the relationship that we have with God. And this is why Paul says to flee to run, like steer clear. Don't test the fence and climb on top of it and look over the edge and be like, oh, wow, it's a fall. It's a long way to fall down there. He says, don't mess around with it at all. And the reason is because your, your heart 
and your mind and your soul and your body and your life and your relationship with God is all at risk when you engage in sexually immoral behavior because it involves all of who you are. Now, these are not easy words to hear. For some of us, like, we're scraping at wounds right now. And some of these wounds are old wounds. Some of these wounds are very fresh wounds. And I don't know each and every one of your stories. I, I, don't, I don't know what your past is filled with. But I do know that no matter how deep you have fallen into this sin, no matter how long you've struggled in this sin, no matter how, how, how many people you've implicated into this sin, you are not beyond the strong saving arm of God. You are not beyond the miraculous healing power of God, the same power that raised Christ from the dead. And this all hits home for you. If this is who you are, and you're hearing this, you're like, oh my goodness, like, I am so exposed right now, and you're struggling this morning, like, what you need to hear this morning is verse 11, which says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let that be the verse that ministers to your soul this morning. Let's read these last verses and finish for the day. Verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Mercy House, we are not our own. Regardless of what the world tells us, regardless of what our feelings might tell us, those of us who follow Jesus are freed from slavery of sin by being purchased. That's what it means to be redeemed, which means that while we're not slaves to our sin, we do have a new master. And what this new master wants from us, what he commands us to do with our lives, is now what we must be obedient to. That's what it means to live as a Christian. But this isn't bad news. This isn't stifling news. This is great news because Jesus, our master, wants what's absolutely best for us. He wants us to flourish. He wants us to be full of joy and fellowship with him and fellowship with one another. Jesus is a good shepherd. He leads us in ways that we need to be led. He corrects us in the places where we need to be corrected. He's the one that is willing to open up wounds and to jump in there. Into that. He's not afraid of the mess in there, and he's willing to do the work of cleaning them out. He resets bones. He mends broken hearts. He's the lover of our bodies and of our souls, the one whom we'll experience perfect union with for all of eternity, and that begins now. If you're not a believer, I, I want to convince you that Jesus is a trustworthy master to follow. So in Jesus, we have the forgiveness of our sins. We have redemption. We, we have this eternal fellowship with God. And he is trustworthy because the cost of redeeming us from our sin was his very own life, which he willingly paid for, for you and for me. So if you're not a Christian, I invite you to receive that by faith this morning, to come talk to me, talk to someone on our staff if you have questions about it and experience new life, forgiveness of sin, and healing today. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this body is broken for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup after supper and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Communion reminds us of the price that is paid for our redemption. It also reminds us that we are not our own, that we are bought with a price. And in that purchase, we have perfect fellowship with God. That's why we're able to share communion with Him and share communion with one another. So if this morning you're sitting here and you're feeling the weight of sexual sin that we've been talking about this morning, I want to encourage you to bring that to the Lord. You don't have to carry that burden any longer. And God is, is, is quick to forgive, and He wants you to live in fullness of life and joy with Him. The staff and, and, and our, some elders are going to be in the back to receive you. If you want to be prayed for, if you want to just talk with someone, please take advantage of that. The way that we respond to the gospel being purchased is to glorify God with our bodies. To not treat our bodies with contempt, to not think about our bodies as, as meaning nothing, but to honor God with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, with all of our bodies, with all of our spirit. Let's pray. Father, you are a good, holy, pure, incredible God. There's no imperfection in you. You are not like us. And God, we confess that we struggle in sin. We struggle in living our new lives in you and divorcing that old life of sin and fleshiness away from us. God, we confess our sin to you. God, we are thankful for all of the grace that we have in you. We thank you that the work that you've done on the cross to wash us and sanctify us and justify us is definitively done once and for all. Thank you that we don't have to do anything in order to earn that or, or to maintain that salvation and that work, but it's given to us as a free gift. And God, I pray that you would help us live as we really are, that we would take the energy and effort to, to see the areas of sin and brokenness in our lives, to not be afraid of it, to not hold our hands in front of our eyes, to not block our ears or just keep our hand clenched, but to trust you and allow you to do the work of cleaning out wounds and resetting us so that we would be able to experience healing, Father. Thank you that you are a good Father. Thank you that you are a good shepherd. We trust you, God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.